Tonight we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. So we started in Ephesians 5, pointing to the household of God. Particularly, we've been focused on, on men, the, ro- the role of men in the, in the church and in the home. And we started with Genesis chapter 1 through 3, seeing that, that picture of, of man in the garden. We looked particularly at fatherhood and our father in the faith, Abraham, last week as we saw the sacrifice of Isaac. And tonight we're going to move to the New Testament as Peter calls husbands to live with their wives in a particular manner. And so if you will, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're only looking at verse 7. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with knowledge, giving honor to the wife and as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together, of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather this evening to worship you. We thank you for the goodness of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to it, open our hearts to it, Lord, and and we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this evening, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. George Whitfield was a great evangelist of the 18th century. He preached the gospel in his home country of England, but he also traveled to places like Ireland, Bermuda, Gibraltar, Holland, Wales, Scotland, and he made the, the trip to America seven times. And this was in a time where you had to do it by boat. So he came to America seven times during his ministry. And It's said of Whitfield that he was really America's first cultural hero. Some have even called Whitfield the spiritual founding father of America. Now, Whitfield was really a household name during this time. And it's likely that no one in America was more well-known than George Whitfield, a preacher of the gospel. Benjamin Franklin himself actually became a friend of George Whitfield. They wrote back and forth at many many occasions and at, at one of these outdoor events, as, as George Whitfield was preaching, Benjamin Franklin walked the crowd. He paced it off and it created a mathematical equation to see how many people were there. And it was estimated that Ben Franklin came up with roughly 25,000 people came to hear George Whitfield proclaim the gospel. Now, Franklin said that Whitfield could still be heard on the outskirts of the crowd, a 25,000-person crowd. People would travel from all over the regions to hear Whitfield preach the gospel at a time when the churches, many of them were not preaching that gospel faithfully. Now, what's interesting is that scholars believe that he likely preached to some of the largest crowds of any human with unamplified voice. And as Ben Franklin realized that even with a 25,000-person crowd, they could still hear George Whitfield preaching. So God blessed his preaching mightily, gave him a voice to proclaim the gospel with, with such power that crowds of that size could hear him without a microphone. But one of the blind spots of the young Whitfield was his view of marriage. He had somewhat of a low view of marriage early in his life. He had somewhat of a what you would call a utilitarian view of marriage, simply seeing it for its practical benefits rather than the full beauty of marriage, the the full picture of what marriage was intended to be from God. 
And it would only be through closely seeing the example of a godly marriage that Whitfield's mind would be changed. He greatly admired a man named Jonathan Edwards, an American pastor and theologian, who was about 10 years his senior. One of Whitfield, on one of Whitfield's trips to America, he yearned to see Jonathan Edwards, so that maybe Jonathan Edwards could impart some wisdom to him. Whitfield was fortunate enough to be able to stay with Edwards for a period of time in their home, and during this time he saw a beautiful display of a godly marriage. Edwards and his wife Sarah are known for their godly household. They desired to live a life devoted to glorifying God in everything that they did, and in particular, in their household. Now, the impact of their household is really unquestionable. There was actually a study done at the beginning of the 20th century of the Edwards family tree. Jonathan and Sarah's impact is really astounding. From their lineage, there was at least at the time of the study, at the beginning of the 20th century, 300 clergymen, missionaries, and theological professors came from that family, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, not to mention many other notable Christians. Now, Whitfield's time there was truly transformative. This is what he wrote in response to their marriage. He said, I felt great satisfaction in being in the home of Mr. Edwards, a sweeter couple I have not yet seen. Mrs. Edwards is adorned with a meek and quiet spirit. She talks solidly of the things of God and seemed to be such a helpmate for her husband that she caused me to renew those prayers, which for some months I have put up to God that he would be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. It was through the observation of a godly marriage that he came to see the beauty of the gospel on display in marriage. The Edwards marriage did exactly what the Christian marriage is meant to be, is to be that beautiful picture of the gospel and the goodness of God. It's a picture that Peter desires for us to live out, for the Christian couple to live out faithfully. And so as we drop into verse 7 this evening, it's on the heels of Peter's call to wives, how they ought to live as, as, as women married to a man, in particular in, in, in the marriage. And so he says, husbands likewise, likewise dwell with them with knowledge. And so as he starts off with this likewise, he says, you husbands in turn. He's been speaking to the women on how they ought to respond in marriage. And now husbands, it's your turn. He's connecting this with the overall household code that he's been speaking of. And he says to dwell with them with knowledge. That they, as they dwell there, to live together with knowledge. Now, why does a husband have to dwell with knowledge? They should live together with their wives informed by the knowledge of God's will and what God demands of us. The, the quality of our marriage will be shaped by our theology and by our practice of it. I love what Dave Harvey wrote on this particular subject. He wrote a book called When Sinners Say I Do of Marriage, and it's a very great read, and I, I always give it to young couples that are giving marriage, or getting married, but he wrote this. He says, it's a wonderful, freeing thing to realize that the durability and quality of your marriage is not ultimately based on the strength of your commitment to your marriage. 
Let me read that again because it is kind of, it challenges us. He says, it's a freeing thing to realize that the durability and quality of your marriage is not ultimately based on the strength of your commitment to your marriage. Rather, it's based on something completely apart from your marriage, God's truth. Truth we find plain and clear on the pages of Scripture. And so Dave Harvey is is pointing us back to God. It's our knowledge of God, our, our knowledge of his ways, how we are called to live. When we live that out, our marriages will be durable. There, there will be quality to them. It's not dependent on us. Because we waver, as we even saw in Abraham's life. And so our marriages have to be dependent upon something else. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was working, I, I would often ask our employees, hey, how are you doing today? And a lot of them would just say, I'm here. I, I, I'm here, right? They're simply just saying, like, I, I'm present, right? I, I'm existing, right? I'm physically here, but I'm really just checked out, is what they're saying. I, I'm not really here mentally, even though I'm here physically, right? I'm, I'm here. And so I always try to, you know, try to pry into that a little more when they answer with, with I'm here. They were just showing up. That's what they were doing. They were just showing up. Now, dwelling together... Man and woman dwelling together in marriage is not about just showing up. It's not about just being there physically. It's something that we must know how to do and we must be involved in, that we must do well. It doesn't come by accident. It doesn't come just because we're there. Simply look around at the state of marriage in our society. Do you think the average couple, even if they're raised in the church, many of them, they don't have the knowledge on how to live out a faithful marriage. And so the church, by the word of God, we must instruct, we must disciple, and we must help couples to dwell together in knowledge, as Peter calls us to do. It has to be according to God's knowledge, not tradition, not even the way we used to do things or the way it ought to be or the way it was. It's the way it ought to be according to Scripture. And so when we point marriages to faithfulness, we have to point them back to Scripture, to God's truth. Now, I think it's helpful to look at also the opposite of knowledge. It's a marriage that's living without thought, that has no thought to things. They're thoughtless, in particular to how God is calling husbands to live. So he calls husbands to live thoughtfully, to live with knowledge. But often we live thoughtlessly to the needs of our wives, our fellow image bearers. And so a God-glorifying marriage, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens by the grace of God and living out our marriage according to God's wisdom. And so Peter is concerned that we live a thoughtful Christian marriage and not a thoughtless Christian marriage. So we need to do that in submission to our knowledge of God. And he calls us to give honor to our wives. He says, giving honor to the wife. And so we are to honor our wives. And Peter will give us two reasons, ultimately, why we ought to honor our wives. Though there are many more, he gives us two important reasons on why we are to honor our wives. The first is that they are the weaker vessel, that they are the weaker vessel. Now, he doesn't give us all the specifics of being the weaker vessel, but it's kind of a broad term used of household vessels, things like jars, dishes, pots. He doesn't clearly define the ways in which they are weaker. 
In certain places, the Bible is very specific about things. And in other places, it, it leaves room. And particularly, each woman is unique. And we need to recognize that. But I think some, some common applications is, one, men are physically stronger. That, that men need to be careful because they are physically stronger. And also, women who submit to men, they are placing themselves in a position of vulnerability. Peter has just called women to submit to their husbands. He even says, you are, he says, whose daughters you are, speaking of Sarah and Abraham, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. He has to tell them that because there is the potential of fear of them being afraid of their husbands. And so men need to be careful because they are stronger. And women are putting themselves in a vulnerable position by submitting to their spouse. And also, particularly in this time, men had societal advantages over women. There's often a low view of women in society at this time. Certainly not ought to be in the Christian household, but in the society by and large. And also they can be taken advantage of. Women can be mistreated in the marriage But when we look rightly at what Peter is saying, that should never be the case. That ought never be the case in a Christian marriage. And so what Peter is saying here, at no point does it make women inferior, just more delicate. That they ought to be careful how they treat their weaker vessel, their vessel that is more breakable. I have a great aunt or I had, she passed away, but my great-aunt Mildred, she went blind when I was young, and any time that I went to visit my grandmother, she would take me to see my great-aunt Mildred. She, she lived in a home, and she needed a lot of care due to her blindness, and, and going, growing blind later in life, she, it was difficult for her to overcome some of those challenges, but we would always go to see my great-aunt Mildred, and it was always a sweet time to, to sit and to talk to her, And I've been very fortunate to have inherited her china set. And so in our house, on prominent display, we have a china cabinet with my great Aunt Mildred's china in it. It's a great reminder of her. I don't pull it out very often. But when I do, I am extremely careful with it. When I wash the dishes, they don't go in the dishwasher. They're all hand washed. I make sure the sink has nothing else in it so that I don't bang it against something else in there and break it, which I have been prone to do with other dishes. And so whenever Aunt Mildred's, Great Aunt Mildred's china set comes out, I'm very gentle. I'm very careful. Now, me being gentle with it, it being a weaker vessel than my other dishware does not make it less important does not make it less than. If anything, I have greater honor for my great Aunt Mildred's set because of how delicate it is. And so as Peter is is pointing husbands to be gentle with the weaker vessel, I think of my great aunt Mildred's china and how important it is to show care to the weaker vessel, to show honor, as Peter is saying. And so, so often, many people, they focus on that aspect of this passage and they really miss the intended meaning because they're so caught up on that weaker vessel. But the whole implication of it is that the husband would then show great care because of it. That the husband, because she is the weaker vessel, would show tremendous care to her. Tremendous care. 
And so they're not to point out those weaknesses. They're not to exploit those weaknesses, those vulnerabilities. That husband should not exploit the weakness of their wives. Instead, raise them up in honoring them and showing care. We must honor them as fellow image bearers, recognizing their gifts and fostering the expression of them, not only in the household, but in the church, in their lives. We see this with the Proverbs 31 wife, as we will see that text. We'll, we'll go to that text later in our study. But the, the Proverbs 31 wife, her husband entrusts her to act, entrusts her to use her gifts to the glory of God with much freedom in many areas. And so we ought to honor our wives. And so he calls us to honor our wives first because they are the weaker vessel. And second, he says as being heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together, the grace of life. We are joint heirs. We are joint heirs with our wives. So in God's economy, we certainly, we've been given different roles. Men and women have different roles. But think about this. The same price that was paid for men at the cross is the same price that was paid for women. So if you want to talk about the testimony of the equality between men and women, just look at the price that was paid. Look at the price that was paid at the cross, that our Savior bore on himself our sins, both man and woman, equally upon himself at the cross. The same payment was paid for our sins. And so husbands ought to lead their fellow image bearers with huge responsibility, which, with huge care, because they've both been shown the grace of life together. And so it's a humbling reminder, because both parties, they desperately need the grace of God. Both the husband and the wife need the grace of God. It's a reminder that we were both once dead in our sins. But God in his grace, he has breathed new life into both parties if they are both trusting in Christ Jesus. And so Peter, is, he's directing our marriages to the end goal. He's directing our marriages to their end goal. And our marriages, they should always have that end goal in mind, and it's our eternal inheritance. Our marriages should have our eternal inheritance in mind. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, really where we got started with this whole discussion. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see a, a similar household code being called upon the, the Ephesian church by Paul instead of Peter. But we see a beautiful picture of marriage in chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. And so I'll start reading in verse 25. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a high call for husbands. That husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and Christ died for the church. Paul goes on to write that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so certainly it's Christ by his spirit who's doing the washing, who's doing the sanctifying, but the husband is being called to live as Christ unto his wife. And so the husband ought to be concerned with the sanctification of his household. He has a role in the sanctification of his household. Now some might say, but my, my spouse is an unbeliever and, and is not a co-heir. 
Paul also speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. Paul writes, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And so he's calling a believing spouse to love their spouse, that they would even be sanctified, that there's common grace to the unbelieving spouse by the grace that's been shown to the believing spouse. And he goes on to say, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So it even has implications unto their children. And so even if you have an unbelieving spouse, you are to dwell in harmony and love unto them, and that there is even common grace in you faithfully loving them with the gospel. And the Lord will bless that, he says. And so we're being called to honor our wives. Honor our wives. Now, as I brought up my great aunt Mildred's china, as I said, I don't often bring it out. But whenever I do, I always show honor to that set and even to my great aunt Mildred. And I'm glad to tell that story of the china and, and, and her story and, and how I got to have this set of china. I show great honor to it. And so let us honor our wives as the delicate vessel that they are, as, as co-heirs, as co-heirs, as our sisters in Christ. And then Peter turns to a warning. Peter turns to a warning. He, he concludes with a brief yet weighty call for husbands with this warning. He says that your prayers may not be hindered that your prayers may not be hindered and so a man who exploits the weakness of women is dishonoring God and has no business going to him in prayer until he makes right with his wife and repents to God it's interesting Peter doesn't warn the women with a warning like this and he gives them more room. He speaks to them in six verses. And he doesn't give them a warning, but the men in particular, they get a warning. In just one brief verse, he makes sure to give them a warning. Men are responsible for their households. As we look back to Genesis 1 through 3, we saw that the men were to take the lead, that they were to take ownership for their household, that they were to provide protection and provision for their spouse. And so by virtue of men being the, the leaders, having the leadership in their home, they are entrusted with the care of their wives and their family. And so how we care for our wives, it matters unto God. Throughout Scripture, we're given really a pattern of God's kindness and care for the vulnerable, in particular. When we think back to that weaker vessel statement that Peter makes, God, throughout the Old Testament, has great care for the vulnerable. We see that in Jesus' ministry also. But there was Old Testament laws particular, particularly concerned with women, children, the poor, the alien, the sojourner going through the land. The Old Testament laws were to protect those that could be easily taken advantage of, those who were vulnerable. And, and, and man is really prone to take, take their power and abuse it. We see that so often for their own gain, for their own glory, for their own selfish desires. And so Peter warns us here. He warns us that we are to show honor to our wives, that we are to be gentle unto them, that we are to be wise in how we care for them. Unless we want 
our prayers hindered, is what he says. And so if we don't treat them like co-heirs, as fellow image bearers, as, as ones befitting the one flesh union, that God doesn't have ears for our voice. And that's a scary warning. That's a scary warning for us men, that, that he doesn't have ears for our voice if we are not living faithfully unto our wives. Look down with me to verse 12. Peter goes on in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are, not, are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so he has ears wide open for the righteous. He is open to their prayers. But to those who do evil, not so much. When I was newly married, I was still somewhat of a new believer. And I had committed to, to read the Bible in a year. I committed that I would read the scriptures in a year, and so I had my plan ready to go, and, and, and daily I would be following my plan and ensuring that I was in the scriptures so that I could come to understand them better. And when we first got married, Amelia and I, we lived in a, in a small condo. We lived in the San Jose Bay Area, and a small condo there uh, was fortunate enough to, to be able to, to live in. And from that condo, you could be in any room in that condo. It was a one-bedroom condo, and you could pretty much talk to anyone else from any room in that condo because it was so small. And so Amelia was studying in the bedroom where we had a little workstation. She was still in college, and I was sitting on the couch reading my Bible. And so she's turned her back to me, and she's typing away, and, and she's kind of getting bored from her studies. And she's just like, hey, how you doing in there? And we're in different rooms, and I'm like, I'm doing good. And, uh, you know, she keeps asking me little small talk questions, and I'm just kind of really short with her. Right? I'm trying to get back into the Word of God. I'm trying to, you know, read my reading plan. I have a goal in mind. I'm enjoying my Bible reading, and uh, I'm getting a little bit irritated, getting a little bit irritated. She's, you know, she keeps asking me things, and finally, she, she sees that I'm distracted, and uh, she, she's like, well, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I'm reading the Bible, right? I, I, I yell at her. I'm like, I'm reading the Bible in here. And she's like, oh, okay. You know, okay. And, and so it's silent, right? You could hear a pin drop. So I'm sitting there frustrated. I look back down to my Bible. And I start reading. And I'm just like, I, I got nothing. I, I can't. I can't do this. All right. So I, I kind of look up, and I'm still frustrated. And, uh, okay, I'm going to pray now. And so I'm, tr I'm starting to pray. And I'm just like, this isn't happening. And so God is, is convicting me that I've sinned against my wife. That, that though reading the Bible is a good thing, it's, it's no excuse to sin against your spouse. And so God quickly convicted me of my sin in that. And part of that was, was because as I'm trying to do the things of God, read my Bible and pray, I could tell that he had no ear for me in that time. I may have not understood at that time 1 Peter 3, 7, but I was living it out. I, I don't have to know it theologically to live it out. Though, though I ought to, and, and, and again, part of that dwelling with knowledge is that I would come to study scripture and how I ought to live out my marriage. I didn't even have to because the spirit of God was convicting me. I, I was living out this warning in 1 Peter 3 that God had, had, had no ear for me because of my sinful attitude towards my wife. And so I, I quickly repented of that. And now it's a sermon illustration reminding me of, of my sinful attitude as I was reading the Bible but that, that's easy for us to fall into that trap. And so there's actually grace in that warning. There's grace in that warning. 
Because the marriage is really, it's beset with struggle because of the fall. There will be struggle in your marriage because of the fall. And so even though a Christian marriage has two parties who are redeemed by the grace of God, two people who are no longer under the penalty of sin, the presence of sin has not been fully eradicated yet in that believer. They're still being sanctified. And so there's grace in these warnings. You think back to the Old Testament, and you think of the warnings of God for Israel in the Old Testament. Things like, there will be famine in the land if you are disobedient to me. Or, or you'll begin to lose your battles against your enemies because you're being disobedient to me. All of those warnings, even up until exile, all of those warnings in the Old Testament were to point them back to God. Were to say, these are signs. This is why he even brought prophets. The prophets came and said, you see this? These are signs that you're being disobedient. Turn back to me. The famine is here because you are being disobedient. Turn back to me. The locusts are upon the land because you are not listening to me. You are not worshiping me. And so there is grace in the warnings of God. And so similarly, when we are not reconciled to our spouse, there will be hindrance to your prayers. But there's grace because that is a reminder to be reconciled to them. That is a reminder to go and to repent of your sin, both to God and to your spouse. And so there is grace in those warnings. There is grace in the fact that I couldn't just dive right back into the word of God. There is grace that I couldn't just dive right back into my prayers because I needed to reconcile with my spouse whom I loved. I needed to show her care because I had not been doing that. And so during those times when we may be at odds with our spouse, look to God's displeasure with you as a reminder for reconciliation. That gospel reconciliation needs to occur between you and your spouse. So if you find yourself in the midst of a a fight or a battle, turn to God. Turn to him in prayer and repentance and turn to your wife or your husband and repent of your sin reconcile with them because the christian marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel the christian marriage is a beautiful picture of the grace of god being poured out upon two people who can live in harmony with one another even though they are both fallen sinners but they are fallen sinners redeemed by the blood of the lamb co-heirs joint heirs of the goodness of God and the eternal blessings to come. George Whitfield was able to learn about this. He was able to be corrected in his low view of marriage through the picture of a godly couple, through observing a godly couple faithfully living out their faith on a daily basis. Not just through Jonathan Edwards' preaching, not just through his teaching, but through his life, through how he loved Sarah, his wife, through how he loved his children, through how he showed care to his family. And so certainly we are to be about proclaiming the gospel, the goodness of God. Jonathan Edwards did that very boldly throughout his ministry. But we are also to be about being faithful in the small things. Faithful unto our families, to our our spouses, to our children. Because that is a beautiful testimony of the goodness of God. A beautiful testimony of the gospel. Now, it is interesting, I made mention of it earlier, but Peter gives six verses to the the wife and only one to the husband. But I think it's a telling thing 
Because as this letter would have been read, it was read in the context of a society where, as a whole, women were very devalued. And so as this letter would be read, it really would have shown God's care for women as they were given such a prominent place of six verses. And we know that the Bible verses were added later, but clearly you can see that it's a much longer section. So it's a much longer section than what the men were given. And so it shows God's care and concern for them as they are given their role. And the women or the men just have one verse, just have one verse. But husbands, we may only get one verse, but if you think about it, the weight of that verse will take an entire marriage to unpack how you are to honor your spouse. And so husbands, dwell with your wives with knowledge, giving honor to your wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Lord, we pray for husbands in particular that you would help us to be faithful, that you would help us to honor our wives, to treat them gently and with care as the weaker vessel, to show them respect and and dignity and love and kindness. Father, we we pray that you would help us to to faithfully teach other young couples, those that that will someday be married, to to, to faithfully live out their faith and to come beside them, Lord, and, and to minister well unto them. Help us to dwell with knowledge with our spouses. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel, and we pray that you would help us to, to picture it well in all of the areas of our lives and in all of the, the ways that we live out our faith. And we ask all these things in Christ's name.